Father in heaven, um, it's amazing that uh, in our hands and before our eyes and coming to our ears through our mouths is the very word of God as we have it in the scripture that you have given to us a book that is the truth. And so we pray that we would not take this lightly but be good stewards of what you have given to us, that we would attend well to your word, that we would understand it, give us grace to understand, give us eyes to see these wondrous things which are in your law and help us, God, to understand, to believe, to live it so that our very lives and ways can give testimony to your truth. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Psalm 119. I want to read uh, what would be considered two stanzas of this psalm. Uh, it begins with verse 65 and ends with verse 80. Psalm 119, please, verse 65. Hear the word of God. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Like those who fear you, turn to me. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Now, before I left, for that brief uh, time away, I uh, was in Psalm 119, and, and, and I shared all of the reasons why for that. But let, let me catch you up just a bit. Remember, this psalmist is, is writing um, so that he can show this group of people, and ultimately then to us, since this is inspired by God and comes to us as his very truth, so to them and to us, the way of a blessed Life. Now that word blessed really means in, in this context, there's two Hebrew words and two Greek words for blessed. This kind of blessed means to be happy. Now the word happy is a thin word for us. It is not a very substantial word. We, we think of it in terms of having fun, being frivolous and all of that. Uh, but, but, but when the Hebrew uses the word happy, it means an enduring happiness. It means, it means to live a contented, peaceful, satisfied life. It means to live the kind of life that everyone aspires to live. The life that's really, if you will, life. That's the blessed life. That's the happy life in this context. So he wants to say this is how one does that. And, and the way he speaks to that is by saying 
one knows this kind of enduring happiness, joy, peace, contentedness, satisfaction, real life, one knows that only by way of knowing, understanding, delighting in, and living out God's word. So everything that we find in this psalm, this song, this hymn, everything we find here is about the wonder and the beauty and the greatness and the sufficiency of the scripture. And we find himself then turning to, to, to pray that God will enable him to understand it, that he'll actually delight in it, that he'll commit himself to live by it because he knows by way of this truth of God, by way of everything he knows that's true about God and all that's in his experience, that happiness, this kind of life comes from understanding, knowing, delighting in, living out the very word of God. Now what rings true for us as well is that as we read through this psalm, we get a picture of this man's life. We realize that he was living out this blessed life in the midst of and even as a consequence of a difficult life. It's one thing to say you can be happy if, if someone can eliminate all the difficulties of life. In fact, there's been some, even in what has stood for the Christian faith, who've tried to do that. We have this, this thread that goes through us, this health and wealth kind of gospel, as it's called. And, and basically, it says you can be happy because if you have enough faith, then you'll be perfectly healthy. If you have enough, well, if you have enough faith, you can, you can have all that, sh- that you need in, in terms of your provision. And, and so that's where real blessedness comes from. It comes from that kind of faith that eliminates any difficulties in, in your health and in, in, your, in your wealth. And, and yet we read the scripture and we see life and we realize... It seems not to be the case in terms of eliminating difficulties from Christians' lives in the context of their health and in terms of financial things that could never be preached to a third world people. It can only be preached in 21st century America where such is possible, at least at points in time, to have that kind of wealth and that kind of, and that kind of health. And yet he finds difficulty. This psalmist in his in his own life. The question is, how can we know this blessedness in the midst of the world in which we live, a world that has uncertainties in it? There there are some that teach that if you have enough faith that God will speak to you in such a way that all you need to do is ask him what to do, he'll tell you, and you'll go do it. So you'll never make a mistake. You'll never pick the wrong job. You'll never pick the wrong car. You'll never pick the wrong person to marry. You'll never pick... You'll never have any of those those kinds of uncertainties. If you have enough faith, he'll just speak to you, and you'll get it, and, and, and everything will always be right, and you can just glide through life that that's blessedness and that's happiness. But But this psalmist knew that God had revealed to him who... He is who God is. And yet he knows that he was living by faith, trusting in God. There are those that say that we'll gain some sense of moral perfection, that we can reach moral perfection, therefore we'll never have to struggle with sin again. But this psalmist doesn't know that. He knows that there's struggle with sin. How can a young man keep his way pure? He asks that question. Why? Because a young man, all men, all people, will struggle in various measures with sin and he knows that so how can we live this blessed life in the midst of even this struggle with sin there's some who say listen if you want to be happy just follow your passions but this 
psalmist knows there are some good passions and some evil passions, and his passions need to be corrected and attuned to that which God is passionate about, that which God loves. And so he doesn't trust his own passions, so he seeks understanding God's passions. And when he seeks the understanding of what God loves and God's passions, he, he finds this tension within himself, and he struggles with that. But he, so he prays and he cries out, God, help me to understand your ways. May I delight in your ways, not my ways, not my passions, because he knows that real blessedness, real happy, real joy, contentment, peace, all of that, life that's really worth living, comes from being attuned to God's ways and inclined to his ways and not our own. Now, now we know that God speaks to us by his word. We know that we pray he hears us. We, we know that he's at work in our lives to transform us and all of that. We, we simply know that that hasn't reached perfection. We, we look to a day when all of that will be perfect. We look to a day in the consummation of this kingdom which Christ has inaugurated on the earth. When that, when that consummation comes, we look for that day when there will be perfect health because our bodies will be imperishable. There will be perfect wealth because provision will be given. That we'll know the very will of God perfectly in every situation because we'll live in his immediate presence. We'll, we'll hear his voice. We'll know him in that more intimate, face-to-face -face kind of way. We know that our passions will be his passions, so we can follow our passions because there'll be no sin in us. We'll be perfectly inclined his way. But till that day comes and we live in the world in which we live, where there are uncertainties, where there are difficulties. The question is, can we live this blessed life? Can we know this happiness? This psalmist comes and he, and, he, and he shares his life very intimately with us, his own sufferings. He's suffering in a way that's, that's, that may be as difficult a suffering as there is, and that's this unjust suffering. There are those who are arrogant. There are those who have turned against God, who have now turned against him, and, and, and now are setting, as he puts it, pitfalls for him. They're setting traps for him so that he'll fall into them, so that he'll fall out of favor, at least they hope, with God, and so that their life will be miserable. And he says that they've almost succeeded. Notice how he puts it in verse 85. He says, the insolent, the arrogant have dug pitfalls for me. They don't live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. That is, they lie about him. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on the earth, he says. They've come very close to completely destroying my life. He's very honest about that. In verse 23, he says that even the prince is against him. In verse 25, he describes his life like this. He says, my soul clings to the dust. In verse 28, he says, my soul melts away for sorrow. And then in the capstone of all this, verse 84, he says, how long must your servant endure? Well, that's real life. And yet on the other hand, he says, now, now I want to tell you how someone who's lived the life I've lived in that kind of affliction, that kind of difficulty, I want to tell you how I've lived so that I can say my life is blessed. I'm happy. I'm at peace with it. I'm satisfied. I can look back and say, this is the life that was real life. This was life that was worth living. He said, no, I've lived in the midst of that according to this, this very word of God. That is, he prayed that God would enable him to understand his word, and God gave him that understanding. So in verse 66 of Psalm 119, he says, teach me good judgment and knowledge because 
for I believe your commandments. Uh, verse 68, you are good and do good. He knew. He knew that God was good. And so even though he's going through all of this, through his mind, what he was thinking, in the midst of this horrible situation, he said, but, but, but God is good. God is good. He never doubted that. He continued to live off of that. Thus he said, verse, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, he says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He says, God, you're good. Thus this will bring good, even my affliction. Remember verse 75. He says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. In other words, he said, God, this hasn't come apart from you, but you've ordained my affliction because you're faithful to me. I can trust you. You're at work. You're doing something here. And what you're doing is good. And so, all right. I can live in the midst of all that. Now, that's, we've already talked about all of that. Now, what I want to bring out today and next Sunday are two points of happiness that comes to this psalmist, two points of blessedness because of his affliction, through his affliction, from the effect that his affliction has on others. First, on other believers, and second, on his enemies. Right? So in the midst of affliction, he says, keep your eye not only on yourself and what God is doing in you, but keep your eye on others. Keep your eye on other believers. He describes them as those who fear God and your enemies. Because looking at other believers and looking at your enemies in the midst of your affliction, as you live according to the word of God, will cause you to be happy. I take that first point, this is all I'll get to this Sunday, that first point from verse 74, just this first sentence. He says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Now think about what he's saying. He's saying, here I am in affliction, here I am suffering, and those who fear you, that is those who believe in you, those who trust you, and that little expression most often means the humble ones, the ones who depend upon God, those who are like me, those who fear you, they look at me and rejoice. And we say, that's not nice to look at somebody who's in affliction and rejoice. So, so what's he really mean? Well it, well, it can't mean that they look at me and rejoice because I'm suffering and they're not. Or they look at me and rejoice because they feel much better about their lives when they see how much trouble I'm in. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you know you've done both of those. Right? I mean, that's, that's been true of us. We've looked at other people's situations and we've kind of taken a deep breath and go, glad that's not me. I mean, let's just be honest here. We're people. We know each other. Um, but, but that isn't his point. Nor is it his point that they look at me and rejoice because they're happy that I'm suffering. It's not that. His enemies might be happy that he's suffering, but, but those who fear the Lord aren't happy that he's suffering. So what does he mean? What does he mean that those who look at me, see me, and rejoice? Well, he knows something of the presence of God. Notice verse 76. He says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. 
So he knows the steadfast love of God, and it's through the steadfast love of God that comfort comes to him. So as he's being comforted, people who fear the Lord are looking at him, and they're saying, look, he's in this great affliction, but God is comforting him. Uh, J.I. Packer, a theologian of some note, I suppose, still alive, so we must be careful when we quote him, um, wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion, which is a rather interesting title, especially if you knew J.I. Packer. He doesn't look like anyone you'd want to share a hot tub with, uh, nor does he look like one who would want to share a hot tub with you. It has a completely different point. But in a chapter that he writes about joy, he notes four sources of joy. In a chapter he writes about joy, he notes four sources of joy. Now, these aren't in the Bible listed these way, uh, listed this particular way, so we could add to them, subtract to them, but, but they're helpful just, just in taking a look. He says, first of all, people know joy or happiness. People know joy, this enduring sense of happiness. People know joy when they're loved. It's difficult to know joy when you're not loved, valued. We're human beings. And so to have a sense that we're not valued means that uh, be difficult to sustain a real temperament of joy, of happiness, to receive, to know this deep breath, this comfort. Secondly, he said that those who know joy see their lives as good, meaning that good will come from my life, that my life will produce, will show good. Thirdly, he says, that those who know joy, this sort of enduring happiness, have in their life something worth having, something of value. Fourthly, he says, that those who know this enduring happiness, this joy, are those who have something worth sharing, something worth giving. Think about that. It's always been helpful to me uh, to see those four corners of sources or grounds for for a joyful existence, for an attitude of joy, to know that you're loved, to know that you have, to know that your life is is a good life. It's producing that which is good, if you will, that evil is not coming, but good is ultimately coming to you and from you. Thirdly, that you have something that's of value to have, that you hold something and you said, this is worth life. And then you have also something worth giving. This psalmist in his own life had this enduring happiness, this, this joy, this, this blessedness in the midst of affliction because he knew these things. And so that brought joy, happiness to himself. Number one, he knew that he was loved. Notice as he puts it in verse 76, he said, let your steadfast love comfort me. And when, when the psalmist uses this expression, steadfast love in Hebrew, uh, it's sometimes it's translated in some versions as covenant love. Sometimes it's translated uh, as loving kindness. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, which, which comes in every uh, expression of love from God to his people because it means that I'm bound to love you. I'm bound to you. I've bound myself to love you by my word. The sense in which I cannot not love you. It's that covenant love. It's the kind of love husbands and wives are supposed to have to each other. That kind of love that says I'm bound to you, thus I'm bound to love you. And I can't not love you. It's that kind of unbreakable love, that kind of love that says, 
Nothing can separate you from the love that I have for you. You see, nothing can separate that. It's that kind of love. And so, so you get the sense that he knows that he belongs to God. He, he knows that even though this wouldn't come out until the New Testament, that in some sense he could say that if God is for me, who can be against me? That kind of love. A wife should be able to say of her husband, if he is for me, then it doesn't matter who's against me. A husband should be able to say of his wife, if she is for me, it doesn't matter who else could possibly be against me. It's that kind of covenant love. God says, he's this psalmist could say, as the apostle said, if God is for me, who can be against me? It doesn't matter really who they are because God is for me. Thus, I'm happy. Thus, I'm filled with this enduring happiness, this, this joy. He knew that kind of love. And most certainly, he had something of great value even in the midst of this affliction. He had the very comfort of God. There's a sense in which God would come to him by way of his word, by what he knew, and bring him comfort, bring him joy. He knew that God was sovereign over all things. He said, it's in your faithfulness that you've afflicted me. Isn't it fascinating that verse 75 says that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. And so he says to the one through whom the affliction is ultimately come, now comfort me. He's looking to God for everything. He says, you've ordained the affliction, now will you ordain some comfort? You're the only one who can help me. You're sovereign over my affliction. You're sovereign over my comfort. So I, I accept this, but comfort me. That has come alongside me. Enable me in the midst of this to be able to take this deep breath that, that enables me to have peace and enables me to have joy and enables me to have confidence in the midst of this. And what's his comfort? His comfort comes from knowing that God is good. No matter what he sees, he knows that God is good. And he says, that comforts me. I'm, I'm going to think about that over everything else. You see, when trouble comes, we need to remind ourselves. We need someone else to remind us of the scripture which speaks to us that God is good. You know that no matter what book you pick up by any atheist, the argument will boil down to how can you believe in God when we live in the kind of world in which we live. How can you believe in a God that you say is both good and powerful? Because if he's powerful, why wouldn't he change it? And if he's good, why wouldn't he change it? Why? That's what it always boils down to, you see. And so the scripture continues to remind us that God is good. Now this Hebrew knew that God was good because he knew the history of God with his people. We know that God is good because we know the history of God with us. And it comes by way of Jesus, you see. It comes by way of his promise and his faithfulness. We say, oh, we see the goodness of God in the person of Christ. And so we can hold on by faith to say, God is good. Good is coming. Good will come. God is good. So he knew that he clung to that and that brought him comfort in the midst of difficulty. I don't know if you've ever been in a deep sense of fear and a deep sense of affliction and a deep sense of suffering of any kind like that. What comforts you in the midst of that? Well, certainly if you can get a word that the, that the difficulty is going to go away, that brings comfort. You go, good, I, I don't like this. But what if that word doesn't come? What, what, what do you do until that word comes? Where's your mind? You need to think 
God is good. From the smallest things, like where are my keys? Right? All right. God is sovereign. God is good. He knows where my keys are. He knows they're not in my pocket. To the most difficult of things, like, I just lost my job. Like, my wife has just told me that our relationship is going south. Or, my kid just came and confessed something to me that's very grievous. All of those, you say. Where do you start? Where's your mind first go? The psalmist says, your steadfast love. God is good. He is faithful. Those are the kinds of things that ring true. One of the reasons that over the last few years we began doing the Apostles' Creed at least once a month is that I want you to memorize it. Because for me, at least, this is very personal, it works for me. I don't know if it's going to work for you, but it works for me that when I go through difficulties, one of the things that rushes through my head, because I've been saying that since I can remember, is that I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I can't tell you how many times I say that when difficulties come. I've told you before that with my kids, we had this little catechism. When things would go bad, I would stop, and I would say, okay, where's God? Who is our Father? Well, he's in heaven. Where's Jesus? He's on the throne. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's with us. And then I would say, okay, now what's the problem? Okay, let's, let's understand the problem in the midst of that. So you can get the sense that the psalmist is thinking, I know the steadfast love of God. I know that he is good. I know that he is faithful. At the moment, I can't put my finger on that. But I know that's true. That's my comfort. That's why he pled with God, enable me to understand your law, enable to me to understand your statutes, your precepts. Because in understanding them, he's saying, then I'm understanding you. And if I don't, I'm sunk. Because I look at the world in which I live, I don't see that. So help me to understand you, the one who's in charge of all of this, the one who's wise, the one who is good, the one who loves me. Help me to understand your ways that I may become wise in your things. Think your thoughts after you so that I can be comforted by that in the midst of the affliction, in the midst of the difficulties that come into our lives. He knew that. He knew he had something worth having. The very salvation of God, he knew he had something worth having. Comfort that came from God. Nothing else really satisfies. Because, you know, when we receive comfort because the problem goes away or the problem is solved in some sense, we receive momentary comfort. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that that or something like that's going to re-enter your life at some point in time. And you know when it does, you may not be able to solve it then. And so there isn't any real comfort in momentary bliss. I, I don't want to take away your times of just relaxation. But, but you know that when you have those, when you're sitting on vacation, when I'm up on a wonderful mountain looking out a beautiful canyon and life seems really good, I know that, that, that something's going to happen. So what's real joy and enduring happiness, what enables me to really enjoy those good times without the fear that I know that bad times are coming, is that I know that I'll be sustained in comforting in good times and bad. 
what sustained the Apostle Paul. He said, I've learned to be content in every kind of situation that there is. And he had been in every kind of situation that there is. And so he knew what it meant to have a lot and have a little. He knew what it be healthy, what it was like to be healthy and what it was to be sick. He knew what it was like to be stoned and what it was like to be praised. He knew everything. And he says, God sustains me in both situations. Whew. That's enduring happiness. That's real joy. Now, what else would give him happiness in the midst of this was to know that he is, his experience was not only for him, but for others as well. Do you know that we have a need not only to be loved, but also to love? That people who aren't loved will find it very difficult to sustain this enduring happiness. But it's also true that people who do not love will find it difficult to endure any kind of happiness. We're meant to love. The commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That command isn't to love ourselves. Jesus and God, they just simply assume that there's a self-preservation here. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, nobody hates their own body. Now, when you do hate your own body, then you have issues, right? That's a problem. But naturally speaking, it's, it's, it's in us to, to, to care for ourselves. So he says, now, the command then is to make sure you look up outside of yourself and to love others. Do you remember Jesus on the night that he was betrayed? He made this statement to his disciples. He said, these things I tell you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So Jesus says, this evening is about this. I want, want to tell you the things I'm telling you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, what was he telling them? Well, in that particular context in John chapter 15, verse 11, he was saying to them, obey my commandments. Now, what were the commandments that Jesus was giving to his disciples on that night? It boils down to one. Love one another. As I have loved you, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So he says, if you want to know the kind of joy that I know, if you want to have joy that's full in you, that comes to completion, to fruition, then here's how you do it. And this is why I'm telling you this, love each other. We must love each other. We're created in the image of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's, as the old Puritan says, a happy or a contented society. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what's the essence of that society? What's the essence of the Trinity? The essence of the Trinity is love. That one loves the other. The Father loves the Son, the Son, the Father, the Spirit, the Father, and so forth. There's love in the midst of that. We're, we're created in that image. If we don't love, then we're utterly missing the reason for which we were created. And so if we don't love, we can never know the fullness of life. So if blessed is fullness, if blessed is happiness, if blessedness is enduring, happiness thus joy, then we have to love each other. There's, there's no way around that. Now one of the difficulties of being in a place of suffering is that we become very self-centered. In one sense, we have to just for self-preservation. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where you're suffering grievously in, in great difficulties, and sometimes we make big things out of little things and it's just, you know, self-pity and all that. But real things that come into our lives are real things. 
And we need to step back and we need to deal with that. And so we spend a great deal of time on ourselves. And if it's a physical suffering or emotional suffering, we simply haven't much left after that in order to sort of love or be there for anyone else. Well, the psalmist says, let me tell you something, that in the midst of your suffering, as you trust in God, you're loving others as well. I read a passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I did that because it's about, about this. It's this very point. It's funny, uh, we think of the Apostle Paul as this, really, this guy that we would love to have show up and teach us and all of that. Well, the church in Corinth didn't think of him like that. In fact, he spent most of his time, especially in his second epistle to that church, defending his apostleship. They didn't really think he was much of an apostle. And their theory went like this. Apostles know God and have great faith. People have great faith God rewards. You're suffering all the time. Everywhere you go, they beat you up. They throw you in prison. You get shipwrecked. Uh, you have all kinds of problems. You don't seem like much of an apostle. And so Paul starts out his second letter to them by saying, my suffering is necessary for me to be your apostle. Apostle from Jesus to you. Because you see, here's how it goes. I suffer, and I, that suffering moves me to depend upon God even more. As I depend upon God even more, I receive comfort and strength from him. And as I do, you look to me and say, oh, God is faithful. See, that's the point. The point is that when we suffer, we must have an eye outside of ourselves. We may not be able to do anything about that to really help them, but the eye outside ourselves to others is that as I walk faithful to God, then they'll be encouraged to walk faithful with God. Because they'll see that even at the worst of times, God doesn't desert us. You do realize that every time, especially a Christian, suffers, it's as if God is on trial. How can God let this faithful one suffer like this? Now, those who are suffering, if they're really ones who love God and are faithful to him, don't ask that question. They just simply trust him in the midst of it. Right? They trust him in the midst of it. And in the trust in the midst of it, you see, then God shows himself faithful. That doesn't mean that the affliction goes away. That doesn't mean the person lives. That doesn't mean the job gets back. That doesn't mean any of that. It simply means that in the midst of that, 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 that God is faithful. And people look and say, ah, oh, God is good. Because people are thinking, when you're suffering, that could happen to me. And if that happens to me, what could happen to me? And as you go through difficulties with an eye outside of yourself, the way that you love others is to say, I'll be faithful to God. He'll show himself faithful. You'll be sustained in your faith. And those of you who've lost children, and still worship God, have deeply loved the rest of us. 
and encouraged us. Those of you who've lost your jobs and still worship God have loved deeply the rest of us and encouraged us in the faith deeply. Those of you who've lost spouses and still worship God have loved and encouraged the rest of us deeply. Those of you who've had children who've strayed away from Christ and yet yourselves who still look to God have encouraged the rest of us and loved us deeply. Those of you who suffer emotionally and still worship God encourage the rest of us deeply. Those of you who suffer physically and still worship God encourage the rest of us deeply. Those of you who have been hurt by other people deeply still worship God encourage and love the rest of us deeply. Do you understand that? That's his point. His point is that one of the things that sustains me, one of the things that enables me to be happy, joyful, content, satisfied with the life that I have, even though I'm suffering, is that I know that God's going to work in such a way in me so that it enables me to love others. So that it might be that the most productive time in your life is not the time that you're on top of your game, but it's the time when you're suffering most. Because it's then that others will say, if that happens to me, God will be there for me as well. One old 17th century commentator, David Dixon, put it like this. He said, it should be the joy of all believers to see one of their number sustained and borne out in his sufferings. For in the proof and example of one sufferer, a pledge is given to all the rest that God will help them in the like case. Let me read that again, he said. It should be the joy of all believers to see one of their numbers sustained and borne out in his sufferings. And what he means by that is, is that it, it should bring joy to us to see another persevere in faith even in the midst of suffering. For in the proof and example of one sufferer, a pledge is given to all the rest that God will help them in the like case. Now let me end like this. Some of you have mentioned to me, and you're not wrong in this, that perhaps what I've been uh, as I've been preaching through this whole suffering thing, that has some relationship to the experience that Karen and I have had in the last few years, a bit of cancer and more than a bit of bacterial meningitis. And I'm sure that's affected me. However, I, I need to confess that I've preached all these sermons 20 years ago, almost to the T, almost to the day I preached this whole series in July and August of 1990. Most of you probably weren't here then, and I was only 11. Uh, and I say that uh, only to say this, that that in itself is evidence of the truth. We, as a community of people, have been thinking these thoughts for a long time. Some of you, before you came here and all of that. But we've been thinking these thoughts as a community for a long time. We've been saying 
that God is good. We've been saying that God is faithful. We've been saying that God is sovereign. That's always on our minds. That's why we come back together once a week. Because from Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, that's not generally the message we get from the places we go. And so we come back once a week to hear it again and to see each other. That's why we're in each other's lives. We know the stuff going on in each other's lives. And we don't know everything, obviously, but in pockets, in your covenant groups, in your small groups, in your Sunday school classes, and you're around your friends and all of that. They, they know you. You know them. You know the difficulties of life. And yet we keep showing up to worship God. And I look at you and I go, oh, I know. I know what you're going through. And here you are saying, I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And so here we come. And you understand that just by your coming, you're loving someone else who knows your life. That's why you can't stay away. You may not want to come to worship, but you have to come for them. You have to come for the others. If you stop coming, it's going to adversely affect the faith of another. They're looking and say, oh no, they crashed and burned. What's going to happen to me? So I'm just like they are. So we keep coming back. We keep saying the same things. Because it's the same thing that we need to say. It's the same thing that we need to hear. This is what sustained Karen to me. This is what sustains all of us in the midst of this situation. I remember looking at Karen, as I've shared before, when she could move. And I said, honey, you're being more productive now than you've ever been. You're loving these people more now than you've ever loved them. And that's true for us all, you see. We must know this if we're going to sustain happiness. Because trouble will come. It has come. It's coming back. Difficulties in relationships have come. They're, they're, they're coming back. Might be copacetic today, but, but it might not be tomorrow. Your job may be stable today, but it might not be tomorrow. Your health might be fine today, but it might not be tomorrow. But we just know this. Our kids might actually behave this afternoon. And we know that's not going to happen tomorrow, right? We know these things. So that's going to sustain the enduring happiness. It's to know that God is good and to know that I have something worthwhile, comfort from God, and know that even at my worst, I'm still able to love you and to express that love even though it might come quietly, even though it might come without me knowing it, even though it might come just by me continuing to be faithful to God. That's real joy. So the psalmist ends with this prayer, which I would suggest to each of us in verse 80. He says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. In other words, may I know you so well that I may continue to follow after you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us, God, that you would help us continue to love each other, share life with each other through its difficulties, that you would continue to sustain the faith of each one of us, that we would comfort, be comforted by you and share that 
that comfort that we collectively on Sundays can come together and speak of these things which are true and take that big long breath that is the breath of peace and that we would enjoy that comfort throughout the week as we think upon you enable us to understand your word to hold fast to it that we may love each other well Father thanks that You've sustained little Andrew Bodorf and uh, through his heart surgery, continue, I pray, to do that. Thank you for Ron and Ellen and, and their love for their son and their faith in you for Leanne Shaw's dad. Thanks for how you've worked in that situation as well. Continue to bless him and sustain his health. Thank you for little Alex Tharp and his surgery on his arm, and we pray that you'd continue to heal him and so many others, Father, whose names I don't have before me, but... But I know we're going through difficulty. I know there are marriages that are having trouble. And there are people having trouble financially. And there are people having trouble physically. And there are people who are having trouble emotionally, Father. These troubles come to us. There are some who feel disrespected by those at work simply because they're followers of Christ. And I, I pray, God, that you would comfort each one of us in that way which speaks to us most dearly. That we would know your goodness and trust in you in the midst of this. And by that, encourage one another, so that as a community of your people, that we might bring you glory and show you to be great. And this, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there are elders available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of, of, uh, of that situation. And please this, receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise that arise from earth to die.